In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. Men in the Arena Army, we salute you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. This is Equipping Men in 10-ish. And I'm Jim Ramos, your host of Spotify's number one podcast for Christian men and your guide to helping you become the best version of you inside the stress bubble of life when you're raising kids and beyond. So guys, I want to jump in to part two in our series entitled Why you can trust the Bible. You know, this is birthed out of many, many of you saying, hey, all, everything you're telling us, you're saying it comes out of the Bible. How do I know I can trust the Bible? So, man, I dove headlong into this thing, guys. And I, I want to tell you, today, part last week, part one was, what does the Bible say about the Bible? This week, part two, this week's part two is the canon, C-A-N-O-N. And you can trust the Bible and how the church fathers determined what made it into what we call the New Testament. So guys, my goal today is to stay out of the weeds. When we dive into the scholarly world, man, we can go deep into it. And so guys, I've pulled this out of uh, my seminary class. I've pulled this from uh, Josh McDowell's works, Evidence that Advance a Verdict Part 1 and 2, and his book, More Than a Carpenter, which is a really small book. It's small and thin, 150 pages. Highly recommend it. Uh, as a as a, a great read for anybody who wants a scholarly resource but doesn't dive into something like this behind me. So, so first of all, here's a question I get asked all the time: If the Bible was written by mere men, then how can we call the Bible the inspired Word of God? So, I want to say this: First of all, go back to podcast episode part one and look at that. That'll help you a lot. So I'm going to review a couple Bible verses that actually speak to that question. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable, and it continues to list what it's profitable for, but it is inspired by God. So the Bible says that the Bible is inspired. 1 Peter 1, 23. For you've been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. So this is this document that we hold in our hands every morning is living. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for prophecy was never by, made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And then lastly, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the vision of the soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So this Bible, this, this document, this library of 66 books that we hold in our hands, some of you, if you're Catholic, it's, it's a bigger document. We'll explain that later. This is, this is, a, this is 
a book that's precious and cherished to us, and we've based our lives on it. We've based our ministry on it. So I want to answer a couple questions that you may have. The first one is, how when we talk about the Bible being inspired of God, how is inspiration in the New Testament different from revelation? So we see a lot of revelation in the Old Testament and inspiration in the New Testament. So how are those different? We need to unpack those. So here we go. First of all, revelation refers to God's this is important. God's disclosure of his person and truth through his acts and works. So Moses experienced a revelation with God in the burning bush. The Israelites experienced a revelation when God led them with a pillar of smoke during the daytime and a pillar of fire at night. These are when God himself, when God delivered the two tablets with the Ten Commandments to Moses. This is revelation. Inspiration, conversely, and theologically, it refers to the human human words, thoughts, or actions as being God-breathed. It's reflected outward. So if God speaks to me and I write a book or I uh, offer up a podcast, if we... There are parts of those every every book I write, every podcast I uh, episode we have, where there are parts of that that are inspired from God Himself. You'll you'll listen. You're like, man, this is this God is speaking to me here. He's using Jim's voice, but God is speaking to me. It's when God uses a conduit or a vessel, maybe a book, maybe a man, to communicate what His wishes are. So when we're saying the Bible is inspired, the inspired Word of God, we're saying that God used human people to communicate his message to man. So this divine human interaction and inspiration, there's a tension there. So if Paul spoke under divine inspiration, which he wrote 13 of the 27 books of the Bible, to what extent then was it still Paul who was speaking? In other words, was it Paul's vocabulary and Greek grammar and syntax? The answer is yes. Yes, it was Paul. Paul was writing in his own voice. Since these differ, we know this since Paul's voice differs from Luke's voice, that differs from John's voice, who differ, that differs from Peter's voice. And so these things, as we can see the writer, the human side of the writer, within the pages of God's inspired Word of God. So if both divine and human, to what degree does God allow human finiteness and limitations to remain present. I know for some of you this is a stumbling block. So you're saying the Word of God is inspired, yet you're also saying that God is allowing a human's limitations into the equation. Yes. Here's an example. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 27b, he, Matthew corrects Mark's gospel and Mark's seemingly weaker grammar. Here's an example. Mark writes in Mark 4, verse 41b, even the wind and sea obeys him. Matthew comes alongside of him after he wrote. So we believe that Mark was the first gospel written. We believe that because it has 16 chapters and, and the scholarly world, the smaller the book, the older the book, because people who come behind that author add to it. So Mark's gospel is 16 chapters. Matthew's gospel is 28 chapters. So Mark writes, even the wind and the seas obey him. But Matthew comes alongside and behind him and says this, even the winds and the sea obey him. So he changes his grammar slightly. 
Does that make the word of God any less inspired? No. Does that make the story any less inspired? No. Do you still understand what is happening in the story? Yes. But what happened here is we see Mark's limitations in grammar as different than Matthew's, even though both are excellent, excellent, excellent. So the incarnation provides the best model for understanding the inspiration of Scripture. It is both truly divinely inspired while remaining truly human literature. So divine inspiration assures us, listen, that the message is precisely, this is really important, divine inspiration assures us that the message is precisely what God wanted to be said. Even though I add an S on the end of wins instead of leaving the S off, God is communicating his message precisely as he wants it. Here's another example of the tension between inspiration and interpretation. As a literal interpretation, we would look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, where Paul says that an overseer must not be a recent convert. And then we would, and that, that recent convert means a younger believer, uh, you know, a younger believer. And Paul is saying to Timothy, that person should never be in a spiritual leadership position like an elder or an overseer. However, in writing to Titus, in Titus 1, verses 5 through 9, Paul offers a very similar list, but he omits that elders must not be young believers. Well, is that a contradiction? No. The reason it's omitted in Titus is because the church in Crete where Titus was was a brand new church filled with brand new believers. There were no mature, seasoned believers. So Paul couldn't write it. It was impossible to write it because it didn't exist. So it's not a contradiction. It's how we're interpreting what the inspiration of the Scripture says based on where it was written to. We can also call that a mirror reading. So these two lists are inspired, but the message is infallible and can only be gained through careful interpretation within the time-bound cultural context of each saying. I hope that makes sense. I don't want to go too deep in the weeds here because the goal is not to confuse you. The goal is to help you understand why I believe the Bible is true, and the goal is to give you the utmost confidence that you can live your life and lead your families by what the Word of God says. Okay, so then how did the early church fathers determine what would become what we now know is the New Testament. I'm only talking about the New Testament here, guys. So I'm not going to dive into the Old Testament. Just stick with the New Testament for now. So in other words, what was the measuring rod? What was the, how did they measure or how did they decide what met the requirements to be inspired and placed into what we now call the New Testament or the Word of God? So we call, the, the, the term they used was canon. How did we determine determine that something is canonized or becomes part of the canon of Scripture? So what do I mean by canon? Is this a loud gun that shoots a large ball at enemies during war? No. Canon comes from the root word read. In English, it's the word cain. Hebrew, it's the word gane. In Greek, it's canon with a k. This, this read, the read in ancient times the actual reed, the plant, was actually used as a measuring rod and eventually became known as a standard or a rule, so a ruler of sorts. So church father origin 
used the word to mean rule of faith. So canon meant the rule of faith. Applied to biblical canon, it means an officially accepted list of books. So when we talk about the canon of Scripture, we're talking about a list of books that have been brought into what we call our New Testament. And as you know, there are 27 books of the Protestant New Testament that we say are the books of the canon. So there was a method that our early church fathers used to determine whether or not something went into the canon of Scripture. So in other words, is this a human book or is this a divine book? Is this a book that's truly inspired by God or is this a book that a man wrote and maybe there's some God stuff in it? But, you know, like, for example, I've got a book coming out. It's going to be a free online resource called Man Laws, 100 Ways to Have Your Man Card Revoked and Rules to Live By. Now, in that book, there are definitely some great points about God and how to live a godly life. But that book is is not a book, I'm going to say, this is a book that's the inspired, God-breathed, you know, voice of the Lord. This is not that book. Okay, I'm telling you. You're going to be laughing too hard to, you'll, you'll just love this book. But anyway... So how did our ancient church fathers determine whether a book was brought into the canon of Scripture? Well, it reminds me, I had to, it reminds me of growing up. Growing up, I used to watch Saturday morning cartoons, and there was a, there was a little cartoon called Schoolhouse Rock, and it had this little like document. It was, it was this animated document rolled up, and it was a he had eyes and he could talk, and he was singing a song. And, and you might know this song, you guys, I'm aging myself right now, but, but part of the song is he says, it talks about the process of a, a bill becoming a law. And, and this, this rolled up scroll says, I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. Man, I know this by heart. And if they vote for me on Capitol Hill, well, I'm off to the right White House where I'll sit and I'll wait with a lot of other bills in line for the president to sign. And if he signs me, then I'll be a law. Oh, I hope and pray that I will. But today, I am still just a bill. And later on, the congressman says, he signed you, Bill. Now you're law. And, the, and he says, oh, yeah. And that's how this, some of you remember that, right? Well, there's a process of a bill becoming a law, just as there's a process of a document circulated after the resurrection of Christ determined whether or not it entered scripture. So experts now believe that everything that we have in the New Testament, and the more research that we find, the more archaeological things we discover, the more we are convinced that every book of the New Testament was written before A.D. 80. A.D. 80. Jesus died and was resurrected A.D. mid-30s, right? So that's that's unbelievable, unprecedented, and in our following uh, podcast about why you can believe the Bible, I'm going to unpack that. It's going to blow your mind. But in 50 to 80 AD, we believe that all of these documents were written. So here are the stages of a document written about Jesus and the life of Jesus that was circulated. Here are the stages that it had to go through to get to the point where the church fathers and various councils ratified this as a book of the New Testament canon. So stage one is the use of the literature. How was it used? How was it read? How did people see it? Was it seen as a document pointing people to Jesus? There, there are criteria there which we'll unpack later. Stage two, so once the use of this was determined to be divine on some level, 
it passed into stage two. Stage two is a collection of the letters. So letters were compiled. Clement of Rome around AD 95 makes use of 1 Corinthians and the book of Hebrews. Polycarp knows of several Paulian letters as well, probably John and Matthew's Gospels though the New Testament collection was not known in most places. So in stage two, these letters are being compiled. So people, they're going around the Mediterranean and people are, you know, getting these letters. They're making copies of the letters. They're saving the letters, passing the letters on. We're beginning to see collections of letters in certain geographical locations. Stage three is this. There begins to have a selection so there were many other Gospels written, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, there was a book, First Clement. There were a lot of other books circulating around during this period of time. But there was a certain criteria that these documents had to meet to begin to get selected as a candidate to be canonized. So there, there were a lot more letters, and sometimes you'll hear these things surface. Different books will be written. People will come to me and say, well, what about this book? Why is it in the Bible? Well, I'm going to talk about that in a bit. So there's this selection, and of the selection of this large group of letters written by uh, people who saw Jesus, who knew Jesus, we move to stage four. And stage four, the final stage, is ratification. Eusebius speaks of the New Testament of 22 recognized books. And there were five that were still disputed. The book of James, Jude, 2 Peter, and 2 and 3 John. So that, that's the first time we see uh, a, a ratification start to take place. Uh, Athanasius, Bishop of Alexandria around AD 367, uh, and the Council of Carthage, uh, AD 397, both know and recognize there's 27 books in this list now. So we have we have this document, let's say. this. Let's say we have the Gospel of John. It's, it's this written document that is being used around the Mediterranean. It's, it's being collected by multiple sources. It's being selected by some as, hey, this is going to be kept. This is an important document. And ultimately, it's ratified as canon of Scripture, right? So, so this is important. So when we see our church fathers determining what actually is going to go into the Bible and what will not, they are judging this based on three things. And this is really important. The criteria for a document being canonized as Scripture, it had to have at least three. Norman Geisler has five, um, but generally three things. Do you see the human component here, you guys? You have to get over this because God uses people. Number one, the first criteria is universality. In other words, was this document received, collected, read, copied, and circulated or distributed by the people of God? So that's the first thing. Was this thing circulated around the world as we knew it at that time? Which the world at that time was the entire Mediterranean, Africa, you know, Egypt, uh, Palestine, Asia Minor, uh, Europe. That that this area around the Mediterranean Ocean, right? So was it circulated? Second is apostolicity. In other words, was it somehow attached? to an, an apostle of Jesus. For example, the book of Mark was actually written by Mark, who was not an apostle, but it was written, Mark was the translator for Peter. So when you read the Gospel of Mark, 
It's really Peter's gospel written by Mark. So that gives you some perspective of, of why it's so hard-hitting and why it's so fast. But it was attached to Peter. Hebrews was attached to the apostle Paul. So that's there's some question there. But So they were attached to these apostles. Was it attached to an apostolic witness? And the third thing is this. This is orthodoxy. Was this document, is this document in alignment with the regula fide? The regula fide means the rule of faith. Did this document align with the entirety of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament? The Gnostic Gospels failed to get in because of this. The Gospel of Thomas, same thing. Uh, Does it meet the standard rule of the people practicing? A lot of these people, remember, were Jews who were saved. They were Messianic Jews. So does this letter fit the entire story of God? And so using those three things is how they determine something that would be canonized. Now, you may be saying, well, now my Bible's got these other books, these apocryphal books, and why aren't these books in some of the New Testament books that I see? Why are these apocryphal books left out? Well, the Apocrypha denotes a collection of ancient books thought to have been written sometime between 200 B.C. and 480. Some Christian churches, include, especially our Catholic brothers and sisters, include some or all of these texts in their Bible between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So the time period was roughly between the, old, uh, the last book of Malachi and the time of Christ. So here are the reasons why it did not make it into the Protestant canon, right? So there, there is no Hebrew canon. The Old Testament, none of those books contain the Apocrypha. Uh, Jesus quotes freely in his time on earth from the Old Testament, but never from any apocryphal book. And the New Testament quotes freely from the Old Testament and other New Testament books, but it never quotes from an apocryphal letter. And the list of Old Testament books in the first four centuries almost, almost always rejected the Apocrypha. There are internal fallacies and doctrinal problems inherent in each Apocryphal book, and therefore, while the Apocryphal books might be revered as pseudo um, depographical books that contain wisdom, they are not to be considered on par with Scripture. So that's why the uh, Protestants have left that out. Uh, is it a hill all die on? Not really. When you read the Apocryphal books, they aren't they read more as a history uh, than spiritual anyway, so uh, I don't think that is a hill that any of us would die on. So I hope this has helped you to grow closer in your faith and to answer some questions about the inspiration of Scripture. That has been my goal. It has not been to wade out into the weeds and get you lost out there and stuck in the mud. So guys, make sure you head on over to meninarena.org. Grab your free copy of my book, Tell Them What Great Fathers Tell Their Sons and Daughters. We're pulling that book down in the next couple weeks, so make sure you get it while you still can. And while you're there, man, sign up to join one of our many virtual teams. Click the Join Our Program button. We want to help you on your journey to become your best version. Until next time, feel the wet sand on the arena floor. Hear the deafening roar of the crowd. Taste the sweetness of victory. Smell the stench of battle. Get in the game. Get dirty. Grind it out. And be a man. 
What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men from around the world and find out the type of dad you are.